1 Timothy chapter 6, we begin with verse 1. That as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, Fight the good fight of faith. They hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed the good profession before many witnesses. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 12. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Let me call your attention, if I may, to the very first verse in the chapter. First Timothy Chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Paul's charge to Timothy in this epistle, I think, shows us very plainly that the ways of Christ and his doctrine go completely contrary to the ways of the world. When Paul calls for servants under the yoke, and there is no doubt about what servants under the yoke means, we're talking about slaves here. When Paul calls for slaves to count their masters worthy of honor, one might be tempted to ask why Paul is seemingly sanctioning slavery. Albert Barnes, in his New Testament commentary, supplies us a helpful note here. Let me read to you what he says. The injunction here would seem to have particular reference to those whose masters were not Christians. In the following verse, where reference is made to believing masters, 
The apostle gives particular instructions to those who had pious masters. The meaning here is that the slave ought to show the Christian spirit towards his master, who was not a Christian. He ought to conduct himself so that Christ would not be dishonored. He ought not to give his master occasion to say that the only effect of the Christian religion on the mind of a servant was to make him restless, discontented, dissatisfied, and disobedient. In the humble and trying situation in which he confessedly was under the yoke of bondage, he ought to evince patience, kindness, and respect for his master, And as long as the relation continued, he was to be obedient. This command, however, was by no means inconsistent with his desiring freedom and securing it if the opportunity presented itself. There are some that are of the view that Paul's letter to Philemon is sometimes cited as proof positive that Paul was against slavery. If you know about that little epistle, that's the smallest of Paul's letters. Uh, He has a, a slave. Paul had a slave come and visit him in prison, a runaway slave. And Paul sends him back to his master with uh, a letter to his master, that his master was to treat this servant well and recognize him as a brother in Christ. And uh, Paul expresses confidence that Philemon would do even more than what Paul was asking him to do, which have led some to speculate that uh, the instructions were for Philemon to release his slaves. Well, that may or may not be the case. It seems a little bit speculative, but... Uh, If we get into this, if we delve into this a little bit more, I think you will see that uh, the best way to overcome evil is with good. And that's what Paul is calling upon uh, Timothy to charge servants with. Uh, You have a cruel master, don't be like him. Overcome his evil with good, and do this as unto the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. And that's why I say you can see how contrary Paul's charge to Timothy is compared to the ways of the world. The way of the world is to be angry and complain and be discontented and dissatisfied and disobedient. And to the degree that you find yourself in your circumstances or in your relationships absorbed with the same kind of whining and griping attitude and conduct, to that same degree you do nothing for the honor of Christ or the gospel except to show that it's made little or no difference in your life. Paul goes so far as to say that where honor is not rendered where it should be, that the name of God and his doctrine are blasphemed. It's rather instructive and convicting to see in the words of verse 1 that where the fifth commandment to honor those in authority is broken, then so is the third commandment broken that tells us not to take the name of the Lord in vain. There are other ways in which the Lord's name can be taken in vain, you see, than just verbally. 
In Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 7, we see another way in which the Lord's name is taken in vain. These verses amount to a petition in prayer by Agur, the son of uh, J.K. Listen to how he prays. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me uh, them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. You can see, especially in verse 9 from that chapter in Proverbs, how breaking the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, is also tantamount to breaking the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Whatever brings reproach or dishonor to the name of the Lord amounts to taking his name in vain. We tend to narrow the scope of that commandment, don't we, in terms of the words we speak. And it is certainly true, and my, don't we know it, we live in a culture where profanity is the norm, and taking the name of Christ in vain is commonplace. What Paul's charge to Timothy amounts to, therefore, in this section of his epistle, is that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed, but rather be upheld and honored. So that's what I want to call your attention to this morning, upholding God's name and God's doctrine. Upholding God's name in God's doctrine. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And if his name is not going to be blasphemed, if we are going to avoid dishonoring or blaspheming his name, then uh, the way we do that is by upholding his honor, the honor of his name, and the honor of his doctrine. And the question I want to raise and then answer is simply this. How is this done? How do we render this kind of honor to God? How do we uphold the honor of his name and his doctrine? And the importance of this can hardly be overemphasized, especially when you consider what I said a moment ago, what kind of culture we live in today. Oh my, you can stand out as a Christian by simply avoiding the profanity and the blasphemy and the dishonoring of God's name that it seems everybody is swallowed up by. And if you're not swallowed up by it, I guarantee you people will notice. And uh, you, you can actually gain a Christian testimony by what you don't say as much as by what you do. So... How is it done? How do we uphold God's name and God's doctrine? Well, consider with me, first of all, we must know what such a charge means. What does this mean, upholding God's name and doctrine? That as many servants, let me read the verse again, that as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. The meaning becomes quite plain, doesn't it? 
in order to avoid blaspheming the name of God and his doctrine, servants or slaves in this instance were to count their masters worthy of honor. I know we've covered this ground somewhat already in our studies of this epistle, but it bears repeating since Paul repeats it. Back in the opening verses of chapter 5, we saw that Paul takes the standard of the fifth commandment as it applies to family, and he broadens the application to those in authority. Listen to these words now. This is the beginning of chapter 5. We've covered this already, but I lay it out before you again to make it a point of emphasis. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. The younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. Father, mother, brothers, sisters, the respect we are to show to our own family members is broadened here to include uh, the elderly and to the young. To all men generally, you could say. And where this commandment proves to be difficult, we should remember that rendering obedience to it is done with a view to God's honor. That's what makes the command doable. Very often, and don't we know this, I dare say every one of us here knows this, we encounter people in our lives, whether they be people we work with, people we work under, whether they be relatives in our own family, we encounter people that in our estimation are hardly worthy of honor or respect. Would you notice, therefore, that when this charge that Paul gives to Timothy goes unheeded, Paul does not say that it's the honor of the slave's master that's dishonored, but that it's God himself and his doctrine that's dishonored. The Christian, you see, lives to the Lord. He doesn't live to his neighbor. He doesn't live to his boss or his employer or his dad or his mom or an older brother. He lives unto the Lord. He aspires above all else to uphold the honor of God and his doctrine. This becomes a matter of priority, you know, in our praying. We considered this uh, a little bit in prayer meeting uh, last Wednesday. We were looking at uh, Daniel, the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. They were going to obey God, period. They were going to obey for righteousness' sake, as a matter of principle. Last Sunday, I taught the Sunday school class, and uh, we considered uh, the story of Isaiah when they were surrounded by the Assyrians. And King Hezekiah was under siege. And you remember what King Hezekiah said when the Assyrians had to quickly pull up stakes and leave their siege because they heard that they were being attacked in another quarter. So the king's delegate, a man by the name of Rabshakeh, he sends a letter to Hezekiah, and in that letter he told Hezekiah not to harbor any notion that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem out of his hands. 
Let not thy God, in whom thou trustest, deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then he goes on in that letter to list all the nations that he had already conquered, and what did their gods do for them? So don't you be deceived, Hezekiah, into thinking your God will deliver you. And Hezekiah takes this letter, and he enters into the temple with it, and he spreads it out before the Lord in the temple, and he prays to the Lord in the beginning of Isaiah 37, verse 16, uh, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which has sent to reproach the living God. Do you see what Hezekiah's chief concern was over? That This delegate of the king is reproaching thee, O God. He's equating you to all the false gods of all the other nations. He goes on, verse 18. This is Hezekiah in prayer. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. O Hezekiah had a desire for the city to be delivered. There's no doubt about that. He'd be pretty foolish if that wasn't a very strong desire on his heart. But there was something he desired even more than that, and that is that God's honor would be upheld. This is what it means, you know, when we are taught to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let thy name be honored, O Lord. That's what Hezekiah was concerned for, first and foremost. The honor of his Lord. He was concerned, you could say, about God's reputation. This pagan ruler had reproached God and pulled him down to the same level as the false gods of the nations he had conquered. And Hezekiah would have this mortal ruler know that God was the Lord and God only. You know the story. God did intervene. And he said he was delivered. And my, how they came to know on that occasion in Assyria, this is the hand of God. I think of another instance of the same thing, Moses in the book of Exodus. He had been used in a mighty way to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. But once they had escaped from Egypt, it seems that the task became increasingly difficult of leading them to Canaan. They grumbled and complained. They longed to return to Egypt. And at one point, they spoke of stoning Moses, forming a party to lead them back into slavery in Egypt. And the Lord was, for the longest time, very patient with them. But the time did come when the Lord's patience wouldn't be extended any longer. 
following the report of the 12 spies that were sent to scout out the promised land, 10 of which had said that the opposition was too strong for them. There was no way they could occupy the land. The Lord threatened on that occasion to disinherit the people because of their obstinate unbelief. And in pleading against this action that the Lord was now threatening, Moses says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 13, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou art Lord among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. Do you see where Moses' primary concern was? It was for the reputation of the Lord his God. He could not bear the thought of the reproach being brought to God among the heathen nations, and so must our chief concern be for the honor of God who created us and for the honor of Christ who redeemed us. We were not created, you see, to live for ourselves, nor were we redeemed by Christ to live unto ourselves. And those who forget the purpose for which they were created and redeemed find that life becomes hard. And life becomes dissatisfying. And there are so many things to complain about. And even when life is sailing along through smooth waters, there is nevertheless something missing when the perspective of honoring God is lost. On the other hand, the Christian that upholds God's honor, even in situations when it might seem to be difficult, that Christian will find that God is his portion and that he can prosper spiritually even as a servant under the yoke. Even as a slave, he can prosper spiritually. One glaring example stands out in my mind. It's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Here's an example of a man that was treated uh, brutally by his brothers. They were going to kill him. That was their first intent. And then in an act of mercy, they decided, no, we'll sell him into slavery. Since a passing band was coming by and the occasion proved convenient for it, they decided not to kill him, but sell him into slavery. He was made a slave in Egypt. While he was a slave in Egypt, he eventually went to prison because of a false accusation. And in the midst of abysmal circumstances, we read of Joseph in the beginning of Genesis 39, and we read of him at the end of Genesis 39, that the Lord was with him and made all that he did to prosper. Whenever I think on the topic of spiritual prosperity, I love to think of Joseph because his circumstances stand out in contrast to the way the world views prosperity. 
Joseph had nothing. He'd been treated unjustly. He was a slave. He was falsely accused. And yet through all of that, there was a sense in which he was rich because the Lord was with him. And the Lord made all that he did to prosper. So we uphold the honor of the Lord's name with the right perspective on life. We live for him. Now I realize that on the surface of it, this can prove to be challenging. That's basically what I said a couple of studies back when we were in chapter 5. But we come now in chapter 6 to a very important key that I think enables us to do this. So having considered what it means to uphold the honor of God and his doctrine, and having looked at a few examples of that being done, let's consider next and finally, just two points today, how this is done. Okay, We have to know how, what it means, then we have to know how it's done. And we find a statement in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6, that could be regarded, I suppose, as a Pauline proverb, so to speak. A proverb is defined as a short, pithy saying in frequent and widespread use that expresses a basic truth or practical precept. Well, here is Paul's short, pithy saying that expresses a basic truth. Note it in verse 6, chapter 6, where he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. How can you render honor unto a, a master, even if that master is cruel? Well, if you have found contentment in the Lord, you can do it. Contentment does not come naturally to the fallen child of Adam. You might say that the whole reason sin gained entrance into the human race was because the devil convinced Eve in the Garden of Eden that she shouldn't be content with what God had provided. She ought to desire more. The devil convinced her of that. And ever since the fall of man, sinners have never truly found contentment. They may think that they found it for a brief time, but eventually, fleshly lusts cry for more. Let me let you in now on a little secret that you probably know and that we, we may be reluctant to admit to ourselves, and that is this, contentment doesn't come naturally for the Christian either. <laughs> Even the Apostle Paul admitted that he had to learn this frame of soul. I have learned he writes in Philippians 4 and verse 11, In whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. He learned it. He didn't know it, you know, uh, as a matter of something that was just inherently a part of him. It was something he had to learn. It was something he had to master. We may think that we've learned contentment when we're in certain kinds of conditions. When we're in a state of good health, we may think we've learned contentment. When we're enjoying good weather with mild temperatures and gentle breezes, 
we might think we've learned contentment, or when everything is going smoothly, nothing is broken down, bills are paid on time, the prospects of the future look bright. Oh, under these circumstances, we're able to convince ourselves, perhaps, that we've learned contentment. But Paul says he learned contentment in whatever state he found himself to be in. Whether he was abased or whether he abounded, whether he was full or whether he suffered from hunger or whether he suffered need of any earthly kind or whether he suffered abuse at the hands of men, which he often did, he had learned in all things to be content. See him and Silas, the book of Acts, chapter 16, I believe it is, singing praises to God while they're in total darkness. Their feet are fastened in stocks deep in the recesses of a Roman dungeon. They knew even there what it meant to be contented. And I think the secret of their contentment has to be traceable to their closeness to Christ. They knew Jesus. They walked with and served Jesus. They sought first his kingdom and his righteousness. And Paul certainly knew that the worst treatment he received in this world didn't come close to matching what he deserved from God for his treatment of Christians before Paul himself became one. What did he do? He tracked them down. He sent them to prison. He had some of them executed. Oh, certainly, of all people, Saul of Tarsus knew that he was a worthy candidate for everlasting hell, and still God saved him. I think it would be fair to say in like manner that our contentment is linked to our closeness to Christ. This is an argument, you know, that is most directly linked to an exhortation that we find in Hebrews 13 and verse 5, where the author writes, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Would you notice in that verse that mention is made of two categories, two headings that pertain to what we have. We have things, and we have Christ. It's sad to think that in our materialistic culture, we place a high premium on things. There are those who live, it would seem, for the sole purpose of accumulating things. Maybe you've heard the saying that some time ago appeared on bumper stickers, read something like this, he who dies with the most toys wins. You know, the rationale behind that saying seems to be even more characteristic of people today. Young people, to a great degree, teenagers today have so many things And what a teenager finds unbearable is the realization that others may have more things than what they have. Everybody has a cell phone today. How is a young person expected to live without one? 
And once a man or woman finds themselves engulfed in such thinking, it doesn't take long to discover that things don't satisfy. Things don't meet the deep needs of your heart. And the solution to such thinking is not to be found in the accumulation of more things, for it doesn't matter how many things you have. A man's life does not consist, according to Christ, Luke 12, verse 15, in the abundance of the things he possesses. On the other hand, a man's life does consist in his knowing Christ. And this is life eternal, Christ says in John 17 and verse 3, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is life eternal. And when I hear the Lord utilizing that phrase, I think there is more to it than life that just lasts forever. That's an element to it. But I don't think that's the only element to it. I think that Christ is speaking of a quality of life as well as a duration of life when he says this is life everlasting to know the true God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. The contrast between things and Christ is so great that it becomes insulting to Christ for us to place things above him. And would you note from that text in Hebrews that unlike things, Christ is someone that we have forever. For he has said, here's the argument for it. Here's the argument for being content with such things as you have. For he, Christ, has said, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. And what this promise of Christ conveys to us is that no matter what else we may not have, we will always have Christ. There are so many things in the world, you know, that are transitory. You may have wealth for a time and then lose it. You may have health and then lose it. You may have status or prestige or popularity in the community and then lose it. You can never lose Christ. And if you never lose Christ, then you never lose life. You never lose righteousness. You never lose heaven. You never lose acceptance with God. You never lose his grace or his favor. When you consider the things that you may lose and compare them with the things you'll never lose, then it's easy to say that you never really lose anything when you've gained Christ. So when we're close to him, then come what may, our sense of purpose and well-being can't be shaken. But when we drift from him and become dissatisfied with him, then we discover eventually that satisfaction can't be found anywhere else. This is why it becomes so important that we not only uphold the honor of God's name, but as Paul also points out, we uphold the honor of God's doctrine, the teaching, the truth of the gospel. 
It's the gospel, after all, that teaches us that though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, that though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It's the gospel that teaches us about Christ, that he is God, the second person of the blessed Trinity, who became man in order to live for us and die for us and rise from the dead for us. It is through Christ that we have the sure hope of heaven and eternal life. It is through Christ that we have the blessing of being adopted into the family of God. It is through Christ that we're bountifully blessed with all spiritual blessings in heaven places in Christ. And so contentment comes through Christ. I was just thinking about this, and this is one of the reasons that uh, we read from Matthew 11 today. When you think of the yoke of slavery, and then at the very end of chapter 11 in Matthew's gospel, Christ makes reference to a yoke, to his yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Uh, Rest in me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And here is a yoke then that takes into account every other yoke you might have to bear in this life. If I'm bearing the yoke of Christ a light yoke, an easy burden in my walk with him, well, that makes other yokes lighten up as well. And it may be that I'm in circumstances that are unjust and unfair. Um, If I'm bearing the yoke of Christ, which means I know the doctrine of the gospel, I know that he accepts me, I know that I'm right with him by his grace, then all other yokes become lightened likewise. So contentment then comes from Christ. And when we realize what Paul says to the Romans, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, then contentment becomes our portion no matter what the challenges of life throw at us. That's why godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain because nothing can rob us of it. It's great gain because so many that live in this world and have so much of the world's goods still don't have contentment. It's great gain because it enables us to see beyond the present state of things and it enables us to recognize meaning and purpose in living for Christ's honor. This is why we must be jealous for God's doctrine and we're jealous for the honor of his name. So tell me, believer, as we bring our study to a close, do you know this contentment? Do you believe in Christ? If you don't, you'll find it impossible to uphold the honor of his name and his doctrine. You'll instead be bandied back and forth by the ever-shifting circumstances of life. Oh, may it be said of each one here that he knows the gain of godliness with contentment, for then and only then will you be enabled and find yourself desirous of upholding the honor of God's name and his doctrine. Let's close then in prayer.
O Lord, as we bow in thy presence, we cannot deny that we find it easy to distort things at times, to place more on what we see with the fleshly eye than what we see in thy word. We thank thee for thy promise, O Lord, that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank thee for so great salvation that he's purchased for us and applied to us by his Spirit. Oh, may this be the thing that rules our lives and enables us to render honor to whom honor is due, to render honor to those who perhaps it is not due, but you call for us to honor them anyway as unto thee. So, Lord, give us this right perspective and may it spring from a contentedness that we have in knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.